Welcome to the Blue Side Podcast. Brought to you by Cambridge University Science Magazine. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Georgia. In each episode, we delve into the intersections between science, technology and society, featuring guest researchers who present a fresh perspective on their work, what goes on behind the scenes and the latest developments in their field. Blue Side Podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, who supply laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research institutions, higher education, NHS, and others across the UK. The Blue Side Podcast is sponsored by Nature Careers. If you get a chance, take a look at Nature Careers' new funding website, which collates thousands of international funding and grant opportunities. So whether you're looking for an undergrad or postgrad scholarship, fellowships, or funding for a project, Try a search at naturecareersfunding.com. Today we have the pleasure of speaking to Orla Woodward, who is a final year PhD student at the Institute of Metabolic Science at the University of Cambridge. Her research looks into advancing our understanding of the hormone responses and physiological mechanisms that regulate appetite, body weight and obesity. Understanding how these hormones work will be greatly beneficial for obesity therapy and prevention strategies for other food intake-related disorders. Throughout her PhD, she has published articles on important public health concerns such as obesity prevention through policy and health inequality in Cambridge. She has also been involved in STEM for Britain, presenting science-backed public health ideas to MPs and policymakers. It's great to have you with us today, Orla. Um, Just wondering if you could tell us a bit about you first. So maybe your background and what got you into the field of neuroscience and public health and obesity. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, of course. Well, I think what initially got me interested in this field was when I was at school, I just absolutely loved biology. I thought it was fascinating. But I was told or I was told at school, like, you know, you should do medicine because you're good at science and you you like it. And so I did do a work experience placement at hospital just to see. But I remember one patient coming in and I think he had, he was complaining about sore feet. And I just remember the doctor pulling off his sock and just seeing the most disgusting foot I've ever seen in my whole life. And at that moment thought, nope, medicine is not for me. Uh, So I applied for biological sciences instead at Durham, which is where I went, which I absolutely loved. Again, it was a fantastic course and I had a great time there. And then when that finished I wasn't quite ready to stop learning about biology so I applied to a master's program at UCL where I was studying the microbiome and how that influences health which again I found so interesting and by the end of that I also wasn't ready to stop studying so that's why I applied for a PhD. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do a PhD in I was kind of interested in a few different areas so the microbiome obviously um, but also metabolism and health in general so that's why I initially applied to a program at the Institute of Metabolic Science which at that institute we look at all different aspects of metabolism so for example the genetics behind uh, body weight and energy expenditure and also how parental programming of development etc So I initially applied for a program that would allow me to do rotations, uh, but sadly I didn't get onto that program, but my current supervisors emailed me after my interview and said, 
that they had another program or another project they thought I'd be really suited for. Uh, and initially I wasn't sure as it was sort of related to hormones and I wasn't that interested in hormones at the time. But then when I read a bit more about the project, I realized it was about how the brain regulates food intake and how gut hormones interact with the brain to regulate food intake. And I kind of just took a chance on it really. I thought, okay, like I've been given this opportunity Let's see where this goes. And that's what brought me to where I am now. Cool. Yeah, no, I can imagine that a lot of PhD students can empathize with with that being the case. You know, I think there's a lot of pressure to feel like at the beginning, you've got everything worked out and you know exactly how your PhD is going to turn out. But often it's a case of diving headfirst into something that you don't know too much about. And hopefully the whole world doesn't know too much about it and then gives you the opportunity to discover something brand new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think with PhDs, it can be so hard to know because they can be so specific. Um, So you kind of have to just go for it and see what happens. And I was just really lucky to have the opportunity to do this particular project. And I realized how much I I enjoy it and how much I'm interested in the field, particularly with its applications to potential treatments for obesity. Mm. Um, which is now something that I'm really involved okay. in. So like, can you tell us a bit more about what the problem with obesity is? Yeah, of course. Well, in the UK at least, uh, two thirds of adults are either overweight or are living with obesity. And nearly half of all or half of school children at the time they leave primary school are also overweight or living with obesity. And this is a problem because obesity is linked to many different diseases, uh, type 2 diabetes being most common one uh, associated with obesity but also many cancers and cardiovascular disease so heart attacks and strokes etc so carrying extra weight does increase your risk of developing those diseases Uh, there's also a lot of stigma around being a bigger person um, so people can feel discriminated against at work um, or have a lot of other mental health um, complications associated with them so on an individual level it's a big uh, issue But even on a societal level, uh, there's a a big financial burden associated with obesity. There was actually a report done in 2014 by McKinsey that suggested that or showed that um, the UK government spends six billion pounds a year on obesity and diabetes related conditions. And that's actually equal to the amount that's spent on the fire service, the police service and the judicial system combined. Wow. So it's a lot of yeah, money. Yeah, a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, it's estimated that by 2050, the sort of wider cost to society is going to be about £50 billion. So something definitely needs to be done about it. Wow. Um, yeah. Is that something that has been worsening a lot over time? Or how does the progression of that look over the past, say, 10 years? Um, yeah, well... Obesity rates have been increasing um, and particularly over the COVID pandemic when everyone was locked inside and couldn't go out and do sports, etc. That we've also seen an increase. So it's definitely not changing in a good direction. And the amount of money that's spent on obesity and diabetes related conditions is increasing every year as well. So, yeah, and it's just forecasted to keep increasing at the moment. Um, and it's it is quite a big problem also because obesity actually can shorten lifespan. Lifespan's been increasing every year, but we're actually at a point where lifespan's going to start decreasing purely because of the number of people who are living with obesity currently. 
Wow. Yeah. It's quite shocking that obesity would be such a pervasive problem that it would have that effect on the lifespan of the country. Mm. Yeah. So what are the current treatment opportunities for people with obesity and what are your thoughts on the ways that they're currently implemented? So currently, um, the only actually successful treatments for obesity are bariatric surgery. So that's like the gastric band um, or the vertical sleeve gastrectomy where you cut out part of the stomach uh, or you can also do a rule on Y gastric bypass where you take the esophagus which connects um, your mouth to your stomach and take it directly to the small intestine and so that completely bypasses the stomach and these are the only ways to actually successfully reduce weight over a longer period but of course they're very expensive they're very invasive and they can be very stressful for patients And you also have to have a BMI of over 40 in most cases um, or have sort of severe complications associated with your weight. So that means that actually people often are trying to gain weight so that they can actually fit into that that band, um, which is quite shocking, really. Mm. And then really for most other people, for the majority of people living with obesity, the only advice they're given really is to eat less and move more which for anyone who've, who's ever done their New Year's resolutions to be, you know, eat more healthily or be more active, do more exercise, we know that that's almost impossible to stick to. So yeah, really there aren't that many treatments at all. Um, there is one drug that's been sort of approved to be used by the NHS, uh, which is called semaglutide, which was approved before Christmas. Um, but again, you, it can only be used if you have uncontrolled diabetes. So for a lot of people, that's not going to work for them. Um, so yeah, new treatments and prevention methods are definitely needed. Yeah, I definitely agree there. Because again, like you said, it's either very invasive or you you need to have other factors first before you're told you can have this method of treatment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So mm. kind of so what sort of science is involved in your research? What are you doing? How are you doing it and that sort of stuff? Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, I'm at the Institute of Metabolic Science and our department specializes in everything related to obesity and metabolic diseases like diabetes. Um in my lab in particular, we focus on the hormones that are released from the gut. So my supervisors, uh, Professor Frank Ryman and Pref- Professor Fiona Gribble, they're experts in the field of gut hormones. Uh, quite a few people look at how gut hormones are released in response to food, um, to the microorganisms that live in our guts, um, and also to um, different chemicals that are present there. Um, but what I'm looking at specifically is how gut hormones regulate food intake through interacting with the, with the brain. Um, and there's sort of different ways that hormones could do this. Um, there's a nerve that travels from your gut to your brain um, called the vagus nerve and hormones can either act on this nerve to activate or increase or decrease food intake Um, but also the gut hormones can act directly in the brain Um, and my research is focused on one gut hormone which is called insulin-like peptide 5 and its receptor which is called RXFP4 And so most of my research so far has looked at is where this particular receptor is expressed in the brain and looking at the 
the cells that express this receptor and the other brain regions that these cells are connected to and also about how these cells are involved in food intake with I guess the overall goal is to understand more about how this particular hormone and receptor are involved in regulating food intake and to potentially in the long term anyway develop drugs that could target this receptor to either reduce or increase food intake. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, so just breaking that down, what does your work look like day to day? Well, to be honest, every day is very different. Um, a lot of my work involves using mice because that's the only way really to study these whole body physiological processes. Um, so one day I might be in the animal unit doing uh, food intake studies with mice. And then the next day I might be in the lab doing more sort of lab-based experiments And then another day I might be on my computer doing more computational bioinformatics. So that's when I use different sort of coding softwares to look at the different genes that are expressed in my cells of interest. And then another day I might again be at my laptop, but this time doing lots of reading into my uh, project and the sort of the wider field, I guess, and seeing how my data fits in with wider knowledge. Um, and they're my favorite days, to be honest. I love, love reading about science. Um, but yeah, that's why doing a PhD is so, so much fun because you get to do all these different things and no day is the same. And I'm often up walking around the lab or walking around the animal unit. Um, so yeah, I really enjoy it. Yeah, so I was like, I've seen that you wrote a piece about the ban on unhealthy foods and why this is necessary from a public health perspective. Can you tell us a bit more about your perspective on this? Yeah, so I wrote that piece in response to the government proposed ban on the TV and online advertising of foods high in fat, salt and sugar. At the time, I was looking uh, at investigating how the brain controls food intake, but specifically looking at how gut hormones uh, influence reward related signaling in the brain. And I just thought it was so interesting how much of an effect the pictures of food and smells of food can have on the brain that in one study they showed that just the sight and the smell of food could cause a 24% increase in brain activity and this is particularly high in sort of reward related regions and there's also been studies that suggest that people's uh, brains respond differently Uh, depending on sort of their genetic makeup or their environmental exposure when they were younger. Uh, So that's really interesting. So what's really interesting is that also the amount that your brain can respond to food signals is also influenced by how hungry you are. So I thought that was fascinating how much of a connection there is between our bodies and our brains um, in relation to just viewing images or um, videos of food. And then also there's been evidence to suggest that foods high in fat, salt and sugar can actually cause compulsive like eating, at least in in animal models. So I at least I know that feeling when I have, you know, one chocolate from a box of chocolates and you can never just have one. Right. You always Mm -hmm. have to have about five. But this isn't really a surprise because the brain pathways that regulate reward related food intake are actually the same brain pathways that are involved in drug addiction. For example, sugary foods can cause a release in dopamine in your brain. And it's actually the dopaminergic pathway that cocaine acts on. 
So it's not a surprise that all these really tasty foods are also highly addictive. Um, and as I was reading more about this, I just thought it was so important for other people to understand a bit more about this and the, effect, the effects that these food adverts are actually having on our brains. So that's why I wrote the article. Um, and hopefully people learn a lot from it. Yeah, wow. There's some really fascinating stuff you just said, especially that statistic on the fact that an extra 24% of your brain is stimulated when you see foods that you like. That must be relatively a really high percentage insofar as brain activating addictive behaviours go. Yeah, yeah. I actually don't know relative to other um, things that stimulate your brain, but it's definitely... There's a large proportion of our brain is given over to finding food. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I guess that definitely makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. What's more important than being stimulated by and motivated by finding food? Um, yeah, so it's so true that this sort of information is really useful for the public just to understand more about more about our relationship with food and the effect that it has on our brains and therefore what to put in our cupboards and what to have on our plates. And I saw recently that you participated in the STEM for Britain competition, uh, which is an opportunity for researchers to present their ideas to MPs and policy makers. That sounds really fascinating. Obviously, I can see a huge application of your research to policy. Um, what was that experience like? Yeah, it was, it was great fun. Um, it was... So the STEM for Britain competition is an opportunity for early career researchers to present their research to MPs in the Houses of Parliament, as you say. Um, and this year I went along to Portcullis House, which is actually next door to the Houses of Parliament, but it's a beautiful building. Um, and I was in the biological sciences category. So they're split into the five different um, sciences and engineering. So you've got the maths category, chemistry, physics, engineering and biology. So I was in the biology category and there are about, I think there was about uh, 60 other um, biologists presenting that day and you put your poster up and then um, sort of different MPs and industry representatives and other early career researchers wander around and ask you about your poster and you just get to talk to lots of different people about your research. So it's an opportunity to, I guess, explain your research to a wider audience. Um, and that's always good practice, I think, for early career researchers. And it was just a really fun day overall. Yeah, I can imagine as well, because, of course, you've got, like you say, you had a mixed audience. So you've got scientists and then you've got people who may know absolutely nothing about your research at all. So I guess it's a really good opportunity to really, you know, you've got to switch from being potentially quite technical to then using quite general terms. What suggestions did you have for MPs based on your research? Yeah, so um, I was presenting research on a potential new target for obesity treatment. So basically my suggestions were um, to increase funding, I suppose, for research related to obesity and body weight management. Um, but also in terms of sort of my the wider context of my research, um, I think taking sort of these high fat sugar uh, salt foods out of the our eyesight is really important so taking them away from checkouts uh, reducing the buy one get one free offers and of course the the ban on online and tv advertising uh, are all really important but I think overall the main point I wanted to get across was that 
you know, our body weight isn't our choice. Like our biology really influences our food choices and our energy expenditure. So it's something that we need to take away from being sort of put on the individual as it's an individual's choice um, or how much activity they do and how much food they take in. Uh, And it's something that the whole food system needs to change um, for us to actually be able to improve health and be able to reduce body weight for Mm. most of society. (laughs) Do you feel positive about that outlook? And do you feel optimistic that Parliament will at least take up some of your suggestions and we will see change? Um, I do, actually. I think it's going to take a long time. Uh, it's not something that's just going to change overnight. But I think with the increased research and understanding of how much of our body weight is based on our biology and our genetics and our upbringing... Um, I think eventually people will, or at least eventually um, government will understand that they do need to take action and they're going to have to change the food system to actually enable people to lead healthier lives. Um, And so while I think it's not going to be a quick change, I do think that if we get the balance of uh, helping people pick uh, healthier food choices, um, enabling people to be more physically active, and also developing drugs that will um, help people who are already at a bigger size hopefully reduce their weight, then we can actually, you know, help improve people's health overall. For sure, yeah. Uh, And I guess as we were discussing before, it makes sense that from a public health perspective or from a public spending perspective, they're both two really convincing reasons for us to develop policies that would be effective at mitigating the obesity epidemic. So through all these different mediums that you've used to communicate your work through writing in varsity to participating in this STEM for Britain activity, coming out of those experiences, are there any particular strategies that you've found really useful in order to communicate your work to the general public? Yeah, well, I think the main thing really for me is having a good story. Uh, making sure that the narrative is really clear and you explain things clearly the whole way through and it all kind of fits together Um, and also making sure you really understand your audience and understand what motivates them and interests them for example if you're talking to a group of children for example at the Cambridge Science Festival I'd often look at what they potentially would have learned at school um, or what they've maybe been watching on tv so that I can sort of tailor my my language and my messaging to that um or if I'm working with older children uh again looking at what they've they're doing at GCSE um and then also making sure you tailor your language to your audience as you mentioned before Mark is is so important um and understanding that words can mean different things to different people so for example in the biology world a cell is you know the unit of life Whereas in physics, a cell is kind of like a battery. I think my physics isn't great, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure. Um, And so just being aware of those differences, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. And I think finally, especially with written work, I think getting getting people who aren't necessarily in your field to read your work so that they can be like, you know, this makes sense or this doesn't make sense or this could flow better, I think is also really helpful. So, I mean, obviously, you mentioned you've worked with, like, kids at the Science Festival and things like that. And obviously, STEM for Britain, you interact with MPs, 
scientist. You see yourself working closely with policymakers in the future regarding your research or other areas potentially? Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important for scientists and policymakers to work closely together because that's the only way we're going to actually be able to translate the, the amazing science that's being done in the labs into sort of solutions for current health problems and, and beyond uh, health. I'm just interested in health. Um, so while I think it is great to study science just for the interest and lots of people do do that and that's amazing. I personally feel like science should be should benefit the wider public and I think that the only way that that can happen is through scientists and policymakers working closely together. So that's definitely something that I'm interested in looking into or um, continuing as I go through my career. Yeah, I totally agree. And you definitely have an opportunity to help improve the country in which you're living in when you offer up your scientific analysis and perspective onto issues that the country's facing. Even issues that might be more tangential to what you're working on day to day. For example, do you want to tell us about, um, I saw you wrote a piece for Varsity about the health inequalities in Cambridge. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Mm -mm. This was actually, uh, again, in response to a project that I did um, with Cambridge County Council um, and the Cambridge University Science and Policy Exchange, or CUSPI. So they run a collaborative policy challenges program, which allows early career researchers to work on local policy challenges. So the question or the challenge that I was working on was um, what is the best way to evaluate the Healthy Fenland Fund, which is an initiative which aims to improve health in Fenland, which is the northernmost district in Cambridgeshire. And when I was doing research for that particular project, I was amazed at the difference in, um, in health between people living in Cambridge City and in Fenland. So, for example, in terms of obesity in Cambridge, I think it's about 40, uh, 43% of adults are overweight or are living with obesity, whereas in Fenland, it's 68%. So that's a huge difference. And I mean, Fenland's only 30 miles away from Cambridge, uh, but the differences are huge. And I think from my research and for talking to local people, it does seem to be linked to deprivation. So there are areas of Cambridgeshire that are, are very deprived, which I think a lot of at least students in Cambridge City just don't really know about because we tend to not venture out further past, uh, um, past the city. So health is very closely linked to deprivation. And there's also the issue with travel. I think from speaking to a lot of people who live in Finland, uh, they say that the, the transport links just aren't there. So even though we have so much technology and so many potential jobs and industries in Cambridge City, it's just uh, very difficult to travel from areas in Finland um, and further out in Cambridgeshire to Cambridge City. And so that also feeds into the deprivation there. So I think I just really wanted to highlight in that article the fact that even though Cambridge City is very affluent and um, there's a lot of wealth and knowledge here, that's not necessarily being spread out to the whole county. Um, so that's something that I think could be improved on a lot uh, through sort of public engagement and going into schools and, you know, showing people um, or I guess inspiring people to 
apply to university and keep studying at least for me keep studying science because that's what I'm interested in um but yeah just I guess showing or enabling the knowledge that's in currently in Cambridge City to be brought out to areas that are further afield I think is really important yeah that's quite think even within Cambridge it's the same sort of story because you know everyone imagines because Cambridge University is here it's a big affluent well-off city but it's really it's really not Mm, yeah so Cambridge is actually yeah the most unequal city in the in the country um in terms of well in terms of wealth but also I think in terms of health and sort of the difference in life expectancy even from people who live in the center of town to people who live in King's King's Hedges can be like sort of five years and that's it's so close that's that's a lot as well like five it doesn't sound much but that is that's quite a lot considering you Mm. know like you say that's what it's not very far at all yeah exactly yeah that's mind-blowing really Mm. so you're coming towards the end of your phd is that right yeah final year so we've got a few a few more months to go but (laughs) that's so exciting um are there any sort of main actions or outcomes that you'd like to see from the research that you've done? I mean, you talked about it a bit in regards to the discussions with MPs that you'd had, but anything else that you'd like to add in terms of applications or, or outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think the main outcome from my research at the moment or in the next couple of years, I think, is just having more of an understanding of how the brain regulates food intake and realising that our food choices are not consciously controlled by us most of the time and that it's such an intricate web of different signaling pathways in the brain that's uh, influencing the food intake but then I think the longer term um, kind of applications would be potentially the development of a drug that targets the receptor that I've been investigating which could help uh, with weight management if, if it is possible it's definitely at least 10 years if not way longer uh, in the future but in terms of other sort of gut hormone receptors um, there are drugs currently being developed that target those other gut hormone receptors so I think having an overall picture of how different gut hormone receptors regulate food intake but also regulate other physiological processes I think is really important as we start to develop drugs that are actually going to target these receptors yeah because I think biology need target like this one thing it's not that's it problem solved you know there's always something else that that's linked to or you know there's something else it's yeah like you say it's a web yeah yeah I think as we develop drugs to gut hormone receptors it's as you say it's really important to understand all the other potential processes that these receptors could be involved in for example um I know there are people in Belfast who are looking at how gut hormone receptors are involved in reproduction for example and you know, if we're going to develop drugs uh, that are targeting these receptors, we def- we definitely don't want to be affecting people's fertility. Um, so it's yeah important to understand all about those kind of things. Definitely. And while we're on looking towards the wider research field, is there anything that you're particularly excited about? I think just in terms of understanding how gut hormones influence everything. <laughs> um, for example, there is evidence to suggest that these gut hormones influence, you know, our immune systems, our reproductive system, um, our mood, you know, anxiety and depression. Um, basically everything in, in our bodies are affected by gut hormones and our gut hormones are affected by the food that we eat and our microbiomes. So I think just understanding more about that whole, um, how everything, how all those 
sort of parts fit together I think is is really exciting um yeah definitely I feel like I've been hearing more and more about the importance of your gut microflora mm. and how it's linked to your brain and how it's linked to all these other health outcomes so mm. yeah I agree that sounds like a really fascinating area of research and um yeah really excited to see what scientists uncover uh, yeah, so thanks so much, Ola. I think that's all we've got time for, but it's been really nice to speak to you today about your research. And we've learned a lot about the physiology of food and cravings and how it's all linked in your body um, and about your experience as a scientist. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 